you should force her to to listen to all the episodes of the Dutch News podcast. Okay. It's Friday, October the 19th, and this is the Dutch News podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Sheepdog Trialist, and with me here today are my fellow Contributing Editor and Sofa Snob, Molly Quell, and Paul Peters, Master Student, Taxi Driver and Binnenhof Stalker. So, what are you, a Sheepdog Trialist? Trialist? I was just on my way down here through Rijswijk and actually saw the traffic was stopped because of a shepherd herding sheep up the road <laughs> in the middle of rush hour. This is and I thought, yeah, I suddenly thought I I've had some kind of bizarre transfer to like the Scottish Highlands, which is where you see this happen all the time, but you don't expect it in the middle of urbanised Netherlands at uh, half past eight in the morning. Perhaps these are the first Brexit refugees. It could be. These sheep could actually be coming the straight over from sheep. Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> And still you made it on time. And still I got here on time, yeah, yeah uh, unlike uh, other people um, in the studio. Yeah, but she was probably too busy crafting a sofa. I was building yeah. another piece of furniture for my house. You guys are just jealous because we built an entire window seat basically out of scrap wood. It looks amazing. It does, yeah. Yes, really it looks nice. really That's good. That's true. And while I was doing that, I just decided I was going to whip up some pillowcases to go along like with this window seat because I am incredibly talented and <laughs> I am extremely underrated on this podcast. It Moving be, on. It must, be <laughs> nice, it must be nice to have so much free time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and probably been uh, down the uh, Binnenhof again, uh, t- taking uh, fan fiction pictures of uh, chairwoman of the Trader Karma. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Now, speaking of free time, I was afternoon off on Tuesday yeah. and I wanted to go to the Vragenuurtje, uh, but uh, I couldn't make it on time. And then all of a sudden, the Tweede Kamer decided to have a debate on the dividend tax, which we're going to talk about later. Mm. And, I th- and I thought, well, let's just go there. <laughs> and uh, I, sat, uh, um, I sat in the audience and I uh, watched the debate. But an hour later, they already um, uh, uh, stopped the debate for the uh, dinner break, which lasted two hours. <laughs> so then I head back uh, home to Delft. Right. Yeah. They so m- two m- hour dinner break? Yeah, it was almost two hours. So I thought what are they I'm doing not for two hours? eating. I think so not, not discussing the dividend tax. Not, not, I mean, yeah. I, that I empathise with. Yeah. Yeah. So I just decided to uh, to head back to Delft. Yeah, I was well, going to wait for two hours. I say most of us have a we go to the pub when we got an hour to kill. Some but. of us would make pillowcases, but no, Paul goes to the bin and hop. <laughs> and somehow you're shaming me for my hobby choices. <laughs> Paul, what's the alpha of the week? Well, the Ophef of the week is possibly the best Ophef we ever had. Yeah, this it is, is a great Ophef. It was a great Ophef. Yeah. Um, as you may or not, may not know, uh, the Amsterdam dance event takes place this week in Amsterdam. That's one of the largest uh, electronic music festivals and gatherings in the world. Uh, dozens of performances all over Amsterdam are taking place. And one of them was in Paradiso. And it was visited by uh, Linda Duits. She is, uh, well, she's pretty famous on Twitter. But during the performance, she tweeted a photo of the people sitting next to her, complaining that they kept asking her to stop talking during the performance. Um, a lot of people replied that they're usually annoyed by people who are not paying attention to mm. the performance and you know keep ha- having discussions with themselves. Um, but then she all replied to these people, it's fucking ADA. <laughs> 
And that little sentence, that comment, immediately evolved into a meme. Everybody and a hashtag and a hashtag. <laughs> Everybody was making fun of it. People made all sorts of jokes with it. Uh, for example, uh, there was a journalist from the Algemeen Dagblad. He said, um, "My editor in chief is standing next to me, and he's telling me to go back to work because it is fucking AD." <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Anne Fleur Decker, she uh, tweeted a photo of herself with "Het is fucking AFD," which are her initials. Right. Uh, and uh, everybody made uh, all sorts of jokes, and it even became. Uh, the number one trending topic uh, in the yeah, Netherlands. I liked the thing that you said yesterday about the uh, from Trau. Oh, 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 yeah. It was just funny. <laughs> I had a good laugh about that. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah uh, made a, a very famous comment once about the VOC mentality that yeah. it needed to come back to the Netherlands and was criticized because, of course, the VOC did a genocide or two. Um, and uh, there is a book published with the 50 best. Uh, political speeches of Dutch history, and they included a speech by Jan Peter Balkenende. But it wasn't his speech; it was a satirical uh, article written based on his speech. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I joked that uh, one of the sentences in the speech was uh, "Het is fucking VOC," yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. which which yeah. had a good laugh. Yeah. But yeah. coming back to this um, original op effort, the Amsterdam dance event, what I loved about it was the fact that uh, Linda Douts's big beef about this was that the Amsterdam dance event is all about. Um, people, middle-aged people trying to recreate their youth. Because Linda Dutch herself is, I think, in her 40s and exactly old <laughs> yeah. she is. But the people she was complaining about, she said, were in their 60s. So yeah. it's kind of like when you turn up for Christmas and your parents get drunk and start fighting with your grandparents. <laughs> and it just felt <laughs> incredibly embarrassing for everyone involved. It was pretty embarrassing, yeah. <laughs> and the good thing was that she she was there in the at this, this performance which lasted in t until 3 a.m. or something. So while she was asleep, everybody was talking about it. So she woke up around noon and she found... <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of mentions on the internet uh, 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 about this comment. So that was, but it's also pretty amazing for her. I it think. is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. This week, the government decided who should benefit from the decision to retain the dividend tax. Spoiler, it's not you. More details emerged of the alleged terrorist cell that was broken up in Arnhem. One of the country's best-loved paintings is getting a facelift, and fewer people are choosing euthanasia, but nobody's quite sure why. In our discussion, we'll look at how the underworld is forcing local mayors to go underground. Prime Minister Mark Rutte survived a no-confidence vote in Parliament this week following a debate about the dividend blasting. Though the move wasn't successful, it was joined by the PVDA, the Labour Party, which was a blow to Rutte. He's in hot water after pushing forward with a plan to scrap the dividend tax, a tax paid on dividends from investments in Dutch companies, which, despite not appearing in any of the party platforms, was present in the coalition agreement. Renta had pushed ahead with the plan, which was unpopular with the public at large, claiming it would encourage companies to relocate to the Netherlands after Brexit. However, two weeks ago, a deal by Unilever to move its headquarters to Rotterdam fell through, and the government was forced to reconsider the tax plan. On Monday, Rutte told the press that the government had scrapped the scrapping of the plan, which would give the Treasury an extra 1.9 billion euros. Later that day, Tax Minister Menno Snell announced the outline of the changes, which included scrapping another plan to scrap the 30% ruling, <laughs> a tax benefit for highly skilled migrants. Plans to reduce the benefit from eight years to five without a transition period have been delayed until 2020 and will include a transition period. As of this recording, though, these plans were not finalized, so they might change again. 
So what has emerged from this whole kind of scrap heap challenge that we've had of things being scrapped, unscrapped, and re-scrapped again? Uh, it's very unclear to me. Yeah, it's, it there's too, too much garbage to be able to really tell. The kind of outcome of it basically is that I think um, the, uh, yeah, the Fei Fei Day wanted, I think it's fair to say, was the party that wanted this dividend blasting to be scrapped, and now they've replaced it with a whole lot of other Fei Fei Day measures yeah. to um, reduce corporation tax yeah. and basically stimulate business. Yeah, they're going to reduce, like you said, corporate income tax, yeah. um, which is going to eat up most of that 1.9 billion euros but they managed to throw a bone to the international community and deal with this like 30 yeah. percent ruling issue yeah. we kind of speculated good. last week that maybe there'd be some spending for or some extra money for teachers or police but no, none no, of that no, that, no. that, that just didn't happen just seems to be companies though yeah. on the other hand it's not like a totally finalized plan so honestly like who even knows what they're going to scrap for the podcast next week yeah who knows who knows uh, and it was also with this no confidence uh, vote. It was supported by uh, Lodewijk Ascher, yeah. the former vice prime minister. Right. And it was truly a real blow to uh, Mark Rutte because uh, he's going to need the, the PvdA uh, after the uh, uh, province elections. Well, he's, he's, gonna need, he's almost certainly going to need one opposition party to, uh, yeah, to, to do some cut deals with him uh, after the, the government loses a majority in the Senate, yeah. which will happen after the provincial yeah. elections in all likelihood. And he's probably counting on the Labour Party, who obviously were his coalition partners in the last cabinet, but yeah. the fact that Asper is now back to motion of confidence doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't bode well. Yeah, it was the first process. time Lodewijk Usher supported a vote of no confidence yeah. uh, against Mark Rutte. It was also brought by Hurt and the Forum for Democracy, who are just forever, you know, uh, always doing that. Yeah. Bringing ahead no confidence. And it was really us. funny because there was a journalist who tweeted a photo of the area just outside the Tweede Kamer. And he said, I remember 10 years ago when, um, when Geert Wilders uh, put a uh, motion of no confidence for the first time to a vote against uh, Mark Rutte, or I believe it was Jan-Peter Balkenen who was the Prime Minister. And he said the, the area was filled with journalists list and uh, now the area was empty mm. and it shows that uh, you know no one takes him seriously no, no one takes a vote of no confidence yeah. at all serious yeah. anymore it used to be a real you know uh, ministers and prime minister would mm. shiver by the thought of yeah. having a motion of no confidence to the vote and yeah. now nobody even cares yeah. no it's just become a part of the french hasn't it it's, it's, what time is it it's, it's yeah. a time for here to put in his motion of no confidence exactly. yet yeah but like we said i mean because this was supported by the pvda and because there are uh Senate elections coming up in March, which do not look like they're going to bode well for the current coalition government. It is not not a great sign for that. Yeah, but I kind of thought it was interesting that the fact there wasn't any extra spending pledges and it was all Fair Day measures because Fair Day no doubt have argued that because we had to scrap one of our measures, we should replace it with one of ours. But it wasn't scrapped because of any kind of you know renegotiation of the coalition deal. It fell apart because Unilever pulled out. Right. Um, yeah, um, pulled out of uh, moving to Rotterdam. Yeah. So in the face of it, the other coalition parties could have argued, well, you know, that, that that's not, you know, we should uh, have a say in how this money is redistributed as well. Yeah. So that kind of says you something, something maybe about how the dynamics within the coalition work at the moment. They seem to be keeping very tight to the coalition plan. Yeah, but yeah, you have to if you have yeah. a coalition with four parties. Yeah. And, and, one, and only one seat. Yeah, it's yeah. really hard to do anything. Police infiltrated a group of seven suspects arrested in Arnhem last month for planning a major terrorist attack in the Netherlands. An undercover officer befriended the group over a period of several months. He first approached the group by email and pretended to be an attack planner for terrorist organization Islamic State. The policemen helped the group plan their attack and provided them weapons, which had been made safe first. Police said at the time of the arrest they had foiled a major terrorist attack, but it still remains unclear what the target was. The plans were described by the police as advanced and involved a car bomb, bomb vest and Kalashnikovs. 
So, uh, Paul, how did the police, like, come across this? An undercover police officer began, as I said, emailing the main suspect, Hardy N. Apparently, you can just email the terrorist yeah. group and you can join them. D was he offering him, like, uh, sort of Viagra or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> he well, said that he was a Nigerian <laughs> prince. <laughs> <laughs> With some Kalashnikovs. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Hardy N. had previously been convicted for trying to join a terrorist organization in, uh, in Syria. Uh, quite soon after the email exchange, the officer actually met with Hardy N. And he started uh, talking, basically, uh, immediately afterwards. A second undercover agent joined as well, and they pretended to be supplying weapons and chemicals necessary for making bombs. Uh, initially, the plan of the terrorist was to have a car bomb explode at a major event in August, somewhere in the country. We still don't know exactly where it was. And after that, when the emergency services would respond, they would attack them with Kalashnikovs and with bomb vests. So it was pretty serious. Um, but in August, they didn't have the necessary weapons yet, so the plan was postponed. Uh, and the undercover agent set up a meeting with the suspect in a bugged vacation home and uh, after that, uh, they could uh, arrest them. Yeah, so this is going to come to court eventually, and uh, almost certainly the defense lawyers will argue this was enticement by the police, right? The police yeah, kind of exactly. basically encouraged these guys to, you know, who were only vaguely thinking of terrorism to actually put together a concrete plan. Yes, and encouragement by the police is, is forbidden in the country, so yeah. it's, uh, th there are no laws exactly on uh, if, if that deals with terrorism, for example, so we're going to have to wait and see what the, what, what the judge will say about this. Exactly, yeah, and then there is kind of a bit of a history in the past of Dutch authorities He's uh, getting a bit too enthusiastic about uh, things like the IRT um, scandal, yeah. where, where, where effectively um, police were infiltrated. Uh, drug dealing networks ended up sort of planning b major scale drug deals themselves. Yeah, and I have yeah. a feeling that that the police has take you know was a bit too enthusiastic with this as well. Yeah. Um, yeah so we're going to have to wait it's and see what, what the judge will yeah. say about this, and it's going to be very interesting. But don't bring your Kalashnikovs to court, please. You, and don't bring your wooden clogs either. Or, or dead. Yeah, you're going to have to yeah. <laughs> leave them outside. It's interesting them. to me that like all business advice tells you not to cold email potential clients, but apparently this works for terrorism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe terrorists need to go to business school. I yeah, and they, so. need a, yeah. they need a better communication department. Yeah, so Molly, if you're sure. interested... Hey, if they pay, I'm, I'm down. <laughs> their, their money spends just as well as anybody else's. I think IS's income streams have dried up lately. Yeah, so that's really a problem. The number of euthanasia cases has fallen for the first time since the practice was regulated in 2002. In the first nine months of this year, 4,600 people were given medical assistance with dying. That's 9% less than the previous year's equivalent figure. Around 90% of euthanasia cases involve people with cancer, heart disease or illnesses of the nervous system such as Parkinson's and motor neuron disease. What's uh, the reason for the fall in the numbers? Has everyone who wants to die already died or something? No one's quite sure. It could be, just be a statistical blip. Um, there was a fairly severe flu outbreak last winter and some people have suggested that maybe all the people who were um, on the brink of dying uh, were then uh, knocked out by the flu. Really? Um, but well, th th a lot of doctors have said they don't really think that... Um, was a big factor because um, flu tends to kill people who are elderly and frail, whereas most people who request euthanasia uh, have things like uh, brain tumours or terminal cancer. The Voluntary Euthanasia Society said doctors may be becoming more cautious in granting euthanasia requests because the prosecution service announced this year that it's begun criminal investigations mm. into five euthanasia cases, so doctors are now more, a bit more um, circumspect on kind of borderline cases. So, yeah, that, that sounds like... That makes sense to me. I yeah, think. no, there's yeah. A, there's more than the flu theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the flu theory doesn't really seem to kind of hold up. But yeah, uh, yeah I think there's a GP talking on uh, Ian van Dach 
this this week saying that yeah he he was definitely thinking a bit harder about it. Obviously, a lot of euthanasia cases are fairly straightforward. People have got terminal cancer; they're only going to live a few months at best, and it's going to be quite painful. But there are other cases where people have mental health problems or alcoholism, that kind of thing, and maybe uh, GPs will be more cautious or more reluctant to uh, accede to a request if they think that uh, there's going, um, the, uh, the prosecution service might, uh, uh, might take a closer look at it. The national exam in Dutch as a second language has been postponed after details of the test paper were found online. Education Minister Ingrid van Engelshove said in a letter to Parliament that questions from the past papers were being shared online by former candidates. The written exam has been cancelled and rescheduled for January 1. Candidates who needed to pass the test to meet their integration or imburgering criteria have had their deadlines extended accordingly. The other three elements of the test, listening, speaking and reading, are not affected. How did this happen? Were there terrorists that emailed all the uh, questions around? <laughs> Pretty much. The National Exams Authority, the CVTA, said it was investigating how candidates were able to memorize details of the test paper so easily. But I think anybody that's ever taken a written exam before knows that that's like not that difficult to remember the questions and then you just leave Especially the when you understand them. Down. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. And uh, yeah, people take their phones into the examination room. Well, right? so you're not allowed to take your phones into right. the exam room, so they okay. won't let you do that. But when I... Uh, so this is a slightly different exam from the actual Imburgering exam, which is what I took, but the setup is pretty similar, so I am presuming that the written exam is a, in a similar format to what I took. And basically it was like four or five, like fill in the answers that you know the sentence starts and then you have to like write you know a sentence or two afterwards but like I certainly could have left the exam and then just like had written down you know mm. like what the answers mm. were and then like shared them online and they're not I don't think that people there's not a lot of like change at least I understood there to like not be a whole lot of like huge number of test bank questions which means that like people were probably getting the same ones over and over again yeah, yeah. i was just going to ask you this just means that they are reusing all the uh, old exams again yeah, yeah. so the answers just have a, have a bigger pool of uh, exam questions yeah. to be to be honest i'm kind of surprised that this didn't happen before because like anybody who's ever gone to university knows that like you have professors who reuse the same exams and then hmm. it once you know this you go find people who took the courses yes, before and yeah. ask for the exam <laughs> yeah. questions right i mean like this also happened when Gordon and I were in university mm -hmm. and we are older than you, Paul. So, like, this is not, like, a new concept no. or whatever. No. So, it just surprises me that they, like... It surprises me that they pretend to be surprised. Right, exactly. Yeah. The Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam has announced that the Nachtwacht by Rembrandt will undergo a major restoration and extensive cleaning. But no worries, the painting will remain on display during the entire operation. Instead of moving the painting to a laboratory, the Rijksmuseum decided to just build one around the painting, which hangs in the museum's gallery of honor. Visitors will be able to watch the cleaning and restoration of the masterwork from 1642 from behind glass. The museum also acquired brand new and state-of-the-art scanning equipment to better research Rembrandt's painting techniques and underlying paint layers of the Militia Company of District 2 under the command of Captain Frans Banning Kok, as the Nightwatch is officially called. One of the great Dutch names. Yes. That's going on my Dutch names list. <laughs> There's more. The museum's director, Taco Dibbits. Oh my god, I forgot that was his name. <laughs> yeah, he speaks of the most ambitious and extensive project ever undertaken by the museum, and that's 
includes the restoration of the museum itself 10 years ago. It's unclear how long the project will take, but the museum emphasized that time doesn't really matter since the painting will remain on display during the entire process. I wonder how the people doing the restoration feel about this. Like, how would you feel if you had to go to work every day for like a couple of years and just like be a fish in a bowl, like mm -hmm. with people staring at you? They've done a similar thing, didn't they, with the girl with pearl earring yeah. in the Maris house, where they had the laboratory in the gallery and people in this watch. It's kind of interesting. They have. They don't, you, don't, you don't actually see, I think the people who are actually working on it uh, aren't, or their work isn't visible, except they've got their, um, the, the kind of, sc they're screened off. Um, but you, they are sort of video screens and little um, information displays that tell you what they're doing. It's, yeah. it's quite interesting to look at. Yeah, I do think yeah. it's a super interesting idea. Yeah. I just think if I was one of the restoration people, yeah. I would be extremely uncomfortable. I mean, you will be focused you, 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 on you, you, the painting itself, so you yeah. won't actually see the people yeah. around yeah. you. If you, if you Maybe you'll just like wear horse blinders, so you just like don't yeah, see Yeah, I think anything. they already yeah. do that, yeah. yeah. If you had the chance, you'd turn into cushions anyway, wouldn't you? Exactly. Yeah. In other Amsterdam news, the Amsterdam Council will discuss a proposal to ban New Year's fireworks in the city in its board meeting in November. Many of the fireworks set off in the streets by the Dutch capital by partying people cause unnecessary injury, damage, and weeks of cleaning up, according to an organization representing people who live in the historic canal district. The Comité Westelijk Grachenkordel has asked Amsterdam's leaders to ban amateur fireworks in the coming December and January. Jan van der Paas, secretary of the committee, told Dutch News that the current situation is, quote, crazy. He said they want to stop fireworks in the city center, and this mostly has to do with like safety. Um, there's a lot of like eye and finger and face injuries. Um, they're terrifying to animals. I can attest to this as having a dog who is terrified of fireworks, and it's just some garbage around New Year's for, for him. Mm. Um, and he also says that like the damage costs the insurance companies and the hospitals are really busy, and that there's a lot of like cleanup afterwards. So it's always very controversial to ban the fireworks yeah, because this is like such a Dutch tradition. It is a massive Dutch tradition, isn't it? But it seems to have been a, a change in the mood in the last few years that maybe we should just have public firework displays and uh, not just let everybody let off fireworks. Because uh, I think part of the problem is it's all concentrated in a couple of hours at the yeah. end of the year and the rest of the time you're not allowed fireworks. So yeah. everybody just stocks up massively on fireworks. It's yeah. interesting because in Belgium, for example, fireworks is legal all year round and nobody fires off fireworks at New Year's Eve yeah. in, uh, in Belgium. Yeah, but it's a cultural thing here. I mean, so it's not like, I mean, you can't, if, even if you just made them legal all year round, Dutch people would still go crazy with the fireworks on New Year's Eve. Well, I'm not sure as much to the extent, it becomes a kind of arms race, doesn't it? Who can get the biggest and loudest fireworks yeah. at that particular point in the Yeah, in but then the what's year? to stop people and from just like getting an arms race about like Sinterklaas fireworks or like King's Day fireworks? I mean, I think if they had... Well, you really... run out of money, if for one thing. They're quite expensive things. <laughs> yeah, if everyone's true. buying their fireworks at the same time, yeah, that's, I think, where you get some, the problem. There is some truth to that. <laughs> I, uh, I had an incident two years ago at Christmas where I my previous dog, who was extremely old at the time and was very skittish around fireworks, and uh, there was these teenagers who had been like setting off fireworks in my neighborhood, and they had actually thrown them at an old woman who was like cycling, and she fell off her bike and had been like pretty badly injured but they were like still just out and about apparently and they threw fireworks at my dog the first one I thought was an accident the second one was very clearly was deliberate and I was, was like 9-11 all yeah, over again exactly and I was so enraged that I picked up my like 25 kilo Rottweiler and chased after this like group of teenage boys like just like screaming incoherently at them and apparently someone had already called the police on them. And so like, as I am like just running down the street, chasing them, like a police car pulls up and is like, excuse me, like, what are you doing? You're, I'm the victim in this scenario. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they did go after the, the 
teenagers and stuff, but I think the police were very concerned about my mental health. They like drove me <laughs> and the dog. I think they were probably concerned about the dog more than anything. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> true. And also, the cop did ask me after he, they dropped me off. They were like, "What were you going to do if you like caught them?" And I was like, "I have no idea. Like, I did not have a plan." <laughs> I was blinded by I anger. Was just so angry. Yeah. 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 But I had the wherewithal to pick the dog up and like run because I didn't. He was very old, so I didn't think he could run fast enough. At least it was an excellent exercise. Sports news now, and the Dutch women's volleyball team's bid for the world title ended on Friday at the semi-final stage. Serbia, who are European champions and boast arguably the world's best player in the big-serving Tijana Boscovic, were too strong over four sets. It's the Netherlands' best ever result at the tournament, and they will now play off for the bronze medal on Saturday against either China or Italy. Another Dutch woman with a chance to make her mark this week is tennis player Kiki Bertens. She will compete in the WTA Finals event, which starts on Sunday and usually features the world's top eight players, Bertens, who's ranked ninth, was drafted in when world number one Simone Halep pulled out with an injury. Yes, and uh, have the men's football team got over the shock of beating Germany yet? That was a remarkable result on, uh, on Friday night, so which Ronald Koeman said was uh, a result that the whole country needed after several years of uh, underperforming and uh, missing two tournaments. That's an underestimation. Yeah, an underestimation. <laughs> but, but they looked much, uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the consensus was, although the scoreline was maybe a bit flattering because they scored twice in the last five minutes, it was a much better performance than we've seen from the Dutch team for some years. They sort of played with 4 for 3 3 formation, there was a lot more kind of interplay, and maybe the outstanding player was... Uh, Dental Dumfries, who despite having the handicap of a Scottish name, um, <laughs> rampaged up and down the right flank. Um, is it the Scottish name? It is, yeah. The I thought it just meant a stupid Frisian <laughs> person. It, it could, well, maybe it says that as well. That's what all Scottish names mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the secret's out. Yeah, no, Dumfries is a town in southwest Scotland, um, oh, really? and he's from Aruba in the Caribbean, ah. and there are lots of people with Scottish names in the Caribbean because, uh, yeah, we didn't behave very well in the, during the colonial era. Oh, you had a fierce mentality there. Mm, yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over that. Um, yeah, other PSV debutants were Stephen Bergwijn and uh, Arno Groenefeldt, and Groenefeldt uh, also scored the equaliser on Tuesday night uh, when the Dutch drew one all in Belgium, so another encouraging result for the football team there. Yes, there are a lot of people who are now already convinced that the Netherlands will become the next world champion, but yeah. I think that's a bit... Uh, Some people are getting a bit carried away, I think. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but at least it's, uh, it's conf- yeah, it's, it, it gives the, the team the confidence they need, um, 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 you know, winning from, from, from Germany, even though they weren't the best at the last uh, championship. No, it a, but it was a competitive game. I think that's the important thing, in an, albeit in the Nations Cup, which is a slightly strange tournament. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was a, it was a proper match. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Germany, as I say, they've lost six out of ten in their last ten games, so they're not uh, quite the force that they've been in recent years, but it's still a good result. Yeah, and it's also pretty uh, pretty encouraging that these uh, debutants, uh, you know, are doing pretty well in the, yeah. in the Dutch national team. Yeah, and Arno Kroenewelt's an interesting case because he was also eligible to play for Nigeria. I think Nigerians were hoping that they could uh, snare him, but now he's had a full cap for the for the Netherlands. Yeah, here. because you can choose uh, for, to play for a national team once, and after that you need to have... Once you've actually played, uh, once you've actually t- gone onto the pitch in a competitive game, then you can't play for another country. Yeah. yeah. We'll be asking why local mayors are increasingly fearing for their safety after this word from our sponsors. This is a weird commercial. Is it even a commercial? It's a commercial to ask for more commercials. Not commercials, just money. Money is pretty great. Yes, and we need some. Dutchnews.nl is independent and receives no state or other funding. We work with professional journalists, translators, and photo agencies who understand the Netherlands well, and all of this comes at a price. And flavoured Stroopwafels are a pretty big line item in our budget as well. So how can people support Gordon's Stroopwafel addiction? And not just mine, I should add. 
No, it's, it's mostly you. It is mostly mine. Yeah. You can donate via Ideal credit card or PayPal at dutchnews.nl forward slash donate dash to dash dutchnews. We will link to that in the liner notes. You can donate any amount you want, but of course more is uh, better. And if every single one of our listeners donate five euros, we've had enough to cover this podcast expenses for an entire year. Well, even the strobe waffles? Even the strobe waffles. Hundreds of people turned out last week at a rally in support of their local mayor, who'd been forced to go into hiding because of death threats. Not a scene from rural Colombia or a Danish TV drama, but the reality in Harlem. Police advised Jos Wienen and his family to move into a safe house after intercepting serious threats from an unspecified source. Wienen gave an address from the town hall steps on Saturday, flanked by armed guards, to thank people for standing up for, quote, a society in which you do not have to be afraid of violence. It's part of an increasing trend of local mayors being subjected to threats and intimidation, often from organised criminals. This week, the government announced all mayors will be given preventive, routine safety checks, not just those who'd received threats. So why are local public servants increasingly in the firing line, and what can be done to protect them and the people they serve? So Gordon, like, what do we know about this threat to Venon? Uh, we don't have a huge amount of detail because the security services aren't saying where it's come from. Um, and even the mayor hasn't been told exactly who's been threatening him. There's been a lot of speculation um, in the in the press that maybe the Hells Angels biker gang are behind it because uh, the mayor ordered the clubhouse to be closed last year and three senior members were arrested for extortion and violence. The Hells Angels themselves have denied any involvement. Vinan also ordered an illegal casino to be shut down and in his previous job as mayor of Katveg, he received death threats from a drug dealer. So we had to deal... Uh with a lot of criminals. But I'm wondering how this goes. Even Wienen doesn't know who is threatening him, but did the one who threatened him send their threats to first to the police and then to the mayor? Or how does, did this happen? We don't know exactly. His threats obviously aren't made sort of directly from an identifiable source, because otherwise he'd know. So or maybe he received some intelligence. He could receive some anonymous yeah. emails, or they may have had intelligence so that they've picked up yeah, some chatter between, between criminals. Yeah, he's one day with a dead horse head in his bed. It's like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, what's happening there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but as you said, there is an increasing trend in mayors being uh, being threatened. What other instances have there been recently? Uh, well, there's been quite a few in the last few years. I mean, for instance, the acting mayor of Emmen, uh, he had to flee to the UK with his family last year. Um, he ordered the local clubhouse of another biker gang called No Surrender to be shut down. And Jos Wienen's predecessor in Harlem, uh, Bernd Schneiders, he had his car set on fire three years ago. That incident was also blamed on the Hells Angels, although again there was no concrete uh, evidence. Mm. Um, and a similar fate befell Marilyn van der Meer Moore in Urukven after she closed a number of drugs labs. And mayors have also been threatened on a number of occasions um, in connection with the asylum issue, so a couple of years ago when there was a big influx of refugees from Syria and they had to find places to accommodate them. Um, several mayors were threatened when they said they were going to uh, build or open, or, or open uh, accommodation centres in their area. Um, and of course, remember the scenes at Helder Melson when there was a meeting of uh, town hall officials about an asylum seeker centre and the building was being pelted with bottles and, uh, and bricks by an angry mob outside. Is there any pattern uh, we can find in these attacks? Uh, well, there are various reasons. Uh, for example, uh, I mean, last year in La Beek, uh, a Syrian man who was refused a house threatened the, the mayor, Frank von Maiden. Uh, but organised crime uh, does seem to keep uh, cropping up as a, uh, as a reason. Mayors are often targeted when they, they close down cafes or premises or other meeting places for known or suspected criminals or if they start cracking down on drug production. Uh, geographically, uh, the highest concentration is, uh, as it will not surprise anybody, in Brabant. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, as well as also in Limburg and South oh. Holland. Uh, it tends to be as well either small towns or semi-rural municipalities rather than the big cities where mm-hmm. these incidents happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of these threats come from individual people and then, I mean, okay, you shouldn't 
threaten the, the mayor, of right. course, but mm. there doesn't seem to be such serious uh, threats, but the really serious ones where the mayors have to go into hiding. We suspect that they come from the organized criminal organizations. Yeah. Organized and it seems crime. to mostly be biker gangs, actually, at least. I mean, I don't know yeah. if that's like statistically accurate, but at least all of the reports that I've seen about yeah. serious threats for mayors are almost always connected to biker gangs. And uh, they are threatening the mayor because the mayors are responsible in the municipality for the safety. Yeah. And yeah. Um, as such, the mayor has the authority to close down or shut down certain yeah. cafes or whatever, if it's... Uh, Maybe they should... I wonder if a, like somewhat of a solution to this would be to take that responsibility and like put it on, I don't know, the city council at large or something so that like, then you have like 27 people to threaten instead yeah. of just like one, which might make it like more difficult. I don't know. Yes, but in the instances of a crisis or when immediate action is yeah, needed, then it's, it's handier to have this authority uh, yeah. to, to put it in one person's hands rather yeah. than a whole commission or a group of people. Right. Yeah, and that's been, I think, uh, an increasing trend recently that uh, mayors are using these powers more, partly because uh, actually... Um, having criminal investigations into these gangs is incredibly complicated and it's very difficult to get prosecutions. So increasingly, the mayors are the people who are taking on the task of uh, trying to restrict the activity of organised criminals by doing things like shutting down premises or refusing licences. So they can then put themselves in the firing line. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, you see this as a reaction. Yeah, I know in Delft with this, you know, Delft has sort of been like the Wild West lawns, as we're calling it around here, because there's been a number of shooting and grenade bombing and, and incidences. And, and killing. And killing. Assassinations. Yeah, assassinations. Um, but they were all, a number of them were sort of targeted at like one or two coffee shops who were the victims of the attack, right? Like it was someone who was coming by and like throwing a grenade at this like coffee shop. But the coffee shops got shut down by the mayor in the instance sort of of like public safety, which I thought was sort of interesting, right? Because Yeah, of, well like, the mayor said that she was wasn't planning on closing the yeah. coffee shops because that would mean that she was rewarding the persons yeah. that mm. were behind yeah. these shootings. But they were shut down respect. for like temporary periods of time. Yeah, so but she did, stopped doing that because yeah. yes, that is basically rewarding the criminals yeah. for threatening them. But I did yeah. think it was like kind of interesting that you would that she just has the power I mean, the mayor uh, yeah, it's just to like do this, right? Because yeah. like the, there's a lot of places I don't think where that's like just a normal function of it's not a normal function of government I think that the mayor always yeah. has yeah in, when public safety places. is involved then the mayor has very yeah. much although I'm not aware of any um, threats that have been made against the Delft mayor although no maybe, me neither yeah. no, no. Yeah, you might expect it because of their crime yeah rate. that's why yeah, I was kind of wondering been this crime so. wave isn't there in yeah. Delft so uh, when a mayor is uh, threatened, what happens then? What is the protocol? Yeah, so there is actually a, an official protocol for what to do uh, when an official is targeted. It's called the Stelselbewaken and Befeiligen. Uh, it involves a justice minister will order the National Counterterrorism Services or a department of it uh, to basically analyse what steps need to be taken to ensure the mayor's safety. And they have quite wide-ranging authority to, as I say, to smuggle mayors out of the country and organise safe houses uh, in other countries if necessary. Yeah, you're surprised um, you have time for this with all yeah. their undercover work. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Venon has been given round-the-clock protection for several months, and he even had a police escort when he took part in a charity swim in the summer. <laughs> they so have, really, like, a police officer, like, swimming they did. alongside him. The police officer was swimming beside him. Wow. As he, yeah. I wonder, like, how do you sign up for that job? You, like, come in in the morning and you're like, all right, who's the best swimmer? Because yeah. you got to go, like, charity swim with this mayor. Well, maybe not who's the best swimmer. Can we find someone who swims at roughly the same speed right. as the mayor? Exactly. Who can swim and hold a gun yeah. above their head yeah. at the same time? Does she have a bulletproof uh, swimming vest Yeah, or a bulletproof yeah. swimming yeah. suit. Yeah, I know that uh, when Willem-Alexander goes for a run, then there's also a a bodyguard that's uh, joining him in his yeah. round, but yeah. I have never heard of a bodyguard that's uh, joining a swim. Well, didn't Maxima 
has done the swims, yeah. the charity swims. I wonder if she yeah. had like a bodyguard then. That's probably the same team. They yeah. have a swimming, swimming bodyguard <laughs> yeah, There's one police swimming There's just like one guy. They're, like, they're just like, call him up. They're like, all right, we got somebody else under police protection that's going for a swim. Like, Bob, you're up. I, I, I hope the king will never decide to swim the Elfstedetocht because oh God, uh, that, that would be awful for that person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but what if you had like a mayor that was like really into like, I don't know, like unicycling yeah, well, competition. Kite, kite surfing or yeah, something Yeah, exactly. Like, that's yeah. like... Yeah. train a police officer to unicycle yeah. so that they can participate in the <laughs> yeah, race. I think so. so how prominent is this? So in a survey about a quarter of local political officials say they've been subjected to verbal abuse in the last year and uh, one in eight have been threatened or intimidated. And there's been a rise in threats on social media as well, so obviously that, that's become a more available, accessible way yeah, of yeah, communicating directly with yeah. politicians, yeah. yeah. And that now accounts for about a third of all incidents. Um, but face-to-face -face confrontation is still the most common form of intimidation. Oh, that's pretty surprising, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah. suppose it's the most effective way to intimidate yeah. somebody, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure yeah. if you threaten someone on social media, often it is yeah. more like blowing off steam rather than really yeah. wanting to, to threaten someone. But yeah. threatening someone in, in your face, you have you, you immediately know who's threatening you. Yeah, right? exactly. You know who it is, yeah. and you know that they know where you are as well. Yeah. So it's more. Yeah, okay. of, yeah that's but, true. But for instance, as well, where mayors will receive text messages on their phones saying things like, you know, that I think it was a mayor who was, I can't remember where it was, who, who, who was being targeted by a gang. And um, when he put the lights out, when he went to bed, he'd immediately get an SMS saying, uh, night, night. Uh, so saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which means we're watching your house and we can see you. It's really intimidating. Yeah. That's yeah. really, yeah. Gets under your skin. Yeah, and you think, yeah, public servants are really. This is really. It's really an important job. And when you threaten someone yeah. who is who is doing this, and uh, very often when you are a city councillor, for example, who are also receiving threats, they are doing this as a side job. Yeah. Mm. And uh, yeah, you really have to be passionate to serve as a city councillor nowadays. Because yeah, you receive so many threats. People often say, you know, if you if you stand for public office, then you open yourself up to this kind of thing. So you've only got yourself to blame, but don't realize just to what extent this becomes a part of your well, life when a you're in a, like, it is a terrible yeah. argument. Yeah, it's yeah. just yeah. a garbage argument, yeah. and those yeah. people should be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you open yourself up for reasonable uh, criticism. Okay, yeah, that's sure. fine, but but threats—that's uh, of course uh, a step too far. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, you shouldn't have to fear for your life. Your children should have to fear for their lives because exactly. you're serving as a public servant. Yeah. yeah. So, has there been any like criticism of this, like of the security measures and like that kind of stuff? Yeah, a bit. There was an interview at the weekend I saw with Afonso uh, Jacobs, who'd been mayor of Helmond in 2010, and uh, he spent four weeks in Turkey, Cyprus, and Belgium. Perhaps he was just upset he'd been sent to Belgium. <laughs> but uh, after intelligence agents reported he was in danger but afterwards he in the interview he said he wondered if they hadn't been a bit overzealous because uh, the problem is that you know obviously once you're taken out of the country or put in a safe house you can't really do your job and that made it more difficult to run the town hall and he found when he came back there'd been people talking behind his back and saying that the local authority was just impossible to run because mm. he wasn't around and he said he never found out he still doesn't know where the threat had come from so and they're keeping that secret for the uh, for the mayors as well yeah, yeah. exactly so that they didn't actually pass on what the source of the threat was so he, he still doesn't know mm. um, but he was under protection for another seven months afterwards and uh, yeah he wondered whether it was actually really necessary to go to that uh, that length yeah. it's pretty interesting to see where well, you have a problem Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, he's walking around The Hague all the time mm. without any obvious security guards around him. And then we have a mayor of Helmond who has to be protected for seven months, heavily protected for several months. It's really weird to see that yeah. Uh, yeah. Th th there's so much 
difference in security. Uh, yeah, and it's kind of a thing. You know, I mentioned this on Twitter at the weekend. A lot of people are really shocked to say, "How is this happening in the Netherlands?" You know, associate it with uh, with other countries. But you tend to think that this is a place where you know the, the, there isn't any great sort of overlap. I mean, if we just sold Brabant back to Belgium, it would yeah, basically it fix a lot of problems. This problem, so <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real problem, and as you said, it's increasing and it's really worrying. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is generally a country that is pretty nonviolent, but you know, organized crime is a thing here. And, you know, I think it's becoming more and more prevalent to target mayors as like the sort of person that you pick on when your biker gang clubhouse thing gets like shut down. And it's not clear to me how you kind of go about stopping that. I mean, it's the guy who's like sitting out in front of the mayor's house, like yeah. that's like sending this text message is not the person who is like no. in charge of that exactly. operation. Foot soldier yeah, so I mean, even if you catch that person, you're not really going to do anything about the like organized crime thing. I don't know. You know, maybe the solution is, some of the solution is, is to change the rules about the marijuana growing thing because then you take away an income stream from organized crime and perhaps we'll see like some changes with regards to that. Yeah, and of yeah, course there have, there have been a lot of um, a real effort in the last year or so as well to try and, to try and uh, ban some of these biker gangs yeah. because that's been going through the courts. I mean, we could just ban motorcycles. That would also be an option. Yes, for, for many reasons. Or like people who own, you can't have, you can either have knuckle tattoos or a motorcycle, but not both. That, <laughs> that would take care of a lot of biker yeah, gang that's problems. True. Yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. Yeah, but you can ban um, or you can legalize marijuana growings, for example. But yeah, you also have this illegal casino, for example, that was right. shut down. And so, yeah, that's not going to solve everything, of right. course. But, yeah, it might solve a big chunk of the problem. Yeah, I mean, or you, you try to set up the systems in such a way that even if the mayor is, you know, in hiding in Cyprus, that, like, these prosecutions and stuff still move forward because then it makes it less useful to threaten the mayor, right? If, like, the cogs in the wheel are just going to keep shutting you down and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So. And uh, the organization that's doing the security for the uh, for the mayors, they also need to come up with a plan to have the mayors be able to do, do their, their job. Yeah. Because, yeah the, if you put the mayor into hiding and he can't do his job, then yeah, yeah then, then yeah. what's the point? Right. Yeah. That's what we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also donate to the Dutch News donation drive. Details of that will also be on the website. My thanks to Molly Quell and Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Darach, and we'll be back next week. Music